Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Phoenix LiveView 0.15.5 was released. Uh, this is mostly a, a bug fix release. But there is one new feature that helps expose live upload errors. So if you're if you're messing with uh, live uploads, the the biggest new feature from Phoenix Live View of recent history, uh, you'll probably appreciate this update. So give it a shot and let us know how it works. Next up, LiveBook gets auto completion. So if you remember LiveBook, it is the kind of a Jupyter Notebook style NX machine learning awesome little self hosting playground for working with data and machine learning and, and just having IEX terminals in a web page too, which is super cool. Uh, so one of the neat things that I got is auto-completion. Now, auto-completion in a web page with code, that's pretty slick. I was impressed. You can check out a link in the show notes to a tweet shared by Jose Valim where he shows a video of this kind of an action so you can get an idea of what this looks like. That is nice. I, I remember uh, autocomplete being like just a regular IEX enhancement not too long ago. No, I'm thinking of Path Helpers. I think that's what it was. Frank Cunliffe and and the Nerves team, I think, had some cool, cool improvements. Anyway, that was this is this is exciting. I love the developer tools. The DX and Elixir gets better. Also in the news, OTP twenty four release candidate three uh, lands. This is the third and last release candidate out of uh, out of uh, Erlang uh, OTP twenty four. It's now out. It's available for testing. Uh, so I'm looking forward to seeing it released and you know what happens when it releases the jit performance is out there for everyone to take advantage of so i i'm I'm very excited about this yeah related to that i saw a tweet uh from whatsapp talking about how they have seen they're where they're using this new beam with the jit they've seen an improvement to their server efficiency of 25 percent that is cool yeah that's bonkers that that is crazy for free, you know. All you gotta do is just keep your keep your stuff up to date, you know. OTP twenty four, just ASDF update, and boom. Related to OTP twenty four, they we got a quick M one update. So M one being the Apple Silicon chips, there's been some work on the OTP team to make the Beam work more natively on M one chips. And Lucas Larson, who we had as a special guest on episode seventeen, talking about the JIT. He shared that uh, right now, Dialyzer builds a PLT on an M1 Mac twice as fast as the non-JIT version. And we haven't even started doing some of the more complex optimizations that the x86-backed one has. So it's just... That's pretty cool. Like if you're using... If you're already using Apple hardware, this is something that just gets you going a lot faster, especially when you're going like with a new version of Erlang or something where you're you really feel that building of the PLT, right? That's like a 15, 20-minute operation sometimes. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, for, for dialyzer builds, I make sure that CI always caches those things. And and yeah. it's always like, I don't know, it's it's CI is configured in YAML, right? So when I'm writing these caching steps, I feel like a, like a, 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 a well, as Chris Keithley would call it, a DevOps uh, engineer. I, I always feel like uh, <laughs> I've put on my DevOps engineer hat because I'm just writing YAML, that's all it is. I am not a DevOps <laughs> engineer, <laughs> but because of all the YAML I got to write just to cache the PLTs, just to make sure that builds can go faster than 15 minutes. So twice as fast on M1 Max. Hey, that's that's a big win. That's pretty cool. Uh, in the business world, Discord and Microsoft, you may remember us talking about a little relationship that they are having. 
there were rumors that uh, that Microsoft Microsoft was going to buy Discord for I forget the number now, but billions, right? Ten billion, yeah. Yeah, lots of money, lots of money, and and we we care about Discord because they use uh, Elixir and some of their backend. They've released some pretty cool libraries about uh, data structures for Elixir and 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 how to make that work with uh, Rust as well. Uh, if I remember right, it's ordered set. Here's an update on that relationship. They were in talks, in acquisition talks. Uh, sounds like that's not going to happen. So my assumption is that Discord is probably going to go the IPO route. So good for them. Lo- love hearing about that, hearing that, uh, that they're confident in their platform, you know, that they're probably going to go public. Who knows if they are or when. But And, and in case you haven't heard of Discord, uh, what Discord even is, it's a, it's a popular text and uh, audio and video chat platform that uses, uh, that uses Elixir. And that's why we talk about it here. Discord uh, looks a lot like Slack, but it originated with like the the audio uh, chat platform and has since evolved into a proper competitor in the space. Billion dollar competitor, you might say. Last up, Phoenix LiveView gets an update to components. So this comes in as a PR from Marlu Saraiva, who joined us in episode 25 talking about the Surface library. Surface being like a Vue.js or React.js style component structure for working with LiveView components. So this is the first of a series of PRs that are coming, but this has already been merged in. But this is working to try and help make components uh, an easier thing. And particularly, one of the, the difficult points you had when in working with live components is when you have uh, non-live view pages that are just you know Phoenix controller server rendered static pages, and then you have live view pages. And say I have a static component that I want to be able to use on both. If I use the live component function for declaring that so I can use it in live view, then I can't use that in my server rendered page. I've just kind of worked around that myself by just using functions that just return EEX code because it's not live. But this looks to be something that would might help build out a better foundation so that you can have components that you could share across a Phoenix live view and a non live view page where they're not live components. So I think that's interesting and it just kind of helps create a better platform for building both straight up live view things and then separately surface things. Also coming, he alludes to future PRs that are coming, which is like uh, helping to have tokenizing HTML. So this helps where you're validating to say, oh, you missed a closing end tag, things like that. I'm really interested to see this and kind of really what this means. I'm, some of that is just going off of what I understand this to look like. As these continue to come out, maybe we'll have to have Marlis back on and share what's going on. This looks like a, it could be a, a big development for, for Phoenix in general, right? Like we've, we've spent a lot of time here talking about Phoenix Live View and regular Phoenix, they're coined as dead views, I guess, versus live views. Those dead views haven't, I guess they haven't really seen a lot of like excitement, right? Because live view is the new, the new hotness. I think what's happening, okay, so we're entering speculation zone now, right? No idea what, what the future holds here, but here's, here's where I th- imagine this could be going is, that Live View has created this separate API that is nice. And Phoenix at large, including dead views, can't take advantage of that. Uh, not yet, anyway. And so this is the first PR or, uh, among several that can maybe consolidate the API. So that way it's a more consistent experience, no matter what view you're using, either live or dead view. So instead of typing out live component, maybe you just type out component now and it will know the context of which it's being rendered in and can, you know, take advantage of diff tracking if, uh, if that's uh, being rendered in a, in a live view, for example, or maybe it'll initiate a live, a live view page at that point. I'm not, I'm not really sure. 
And then also wanted to point out that, like, yeah, like Mark said, upcoming PRs will include Heeks, H-E-E-X. I guess the H stands for HTML, E-E-X, where it tokenizes the HTML. In, uh, in live view, you, you know, the, the DOM is parsed, um, especially in, in tests. In, in dead views, they're not. They're, they're, they're just strings. So I imagine that this will become much more validated in the future, much like what Surface uh, is, is right now. So I don't know. This, this could be, I wonder if this is uh, leading towards Phoenix 1.6, where 1.6 introduces much of the work that Surface has included and merged into Phoenix, but not totally, right? Some, some important aspects of Surface go into, and go into Phoenix. Okay, that's the end of Speculation Zone. I have no idea where that's going, uh, but that's, those are my thoughts. And that's it for the news. Today, we're being joined by our very special guest, Jonathan Kwosko. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Jonathan, I am really excited you're able to make it and talk with us today. You are kind of like that guy who's been behind the scenes working on this super cool thing that's called Livebook that came out that Jose unveiled and with a lot of fanfare and excitement. I came to learn that you are the guy who is behind a lot of this. And so I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about that, kind of learn how this works, where a lot of this comes from, and get your insights. But before we jump into all that, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? Sure. Um, so my name is Jonathan. I live in Poland, currently in Krakow, where I go to the university. I also work at Dashbit, currently part-time. And in Dashbit, I am responsible for the Lightbook project. So that's why I joined Dashbit initially. And that's what I've been doing over the past few months. So that's me. One thing I think is just kind of impressive to me. You're working part-time at Dashbit. You're a student. Still, I assume a full-time student. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. That's a lot to balance. That's, a, that's cool. Uh, but then you're also <laughs> doing something like Livebook, which is really impressive. And so I'm just like, wow, you know, that's awesome. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your development experience before coming to Elixir. With university, you've had some classes and exposure to different things. But Livebook and you know, you're doing Phoenix and LiveView and Elixir, which is probably not what you were taught in school. So how did all that come about? Well, so actually, I got to know Elixir a year ago at the university where we had Erlang and Elixir classes. But before that, I was mostly doing JavaScript and Ruby, right? So probably not that surprising. Although my mindset was kind of closer to functional programming, so where I got to know the Erlang and Elixir pragmatic approach to functional programming, it really clicked for me. So that was like the first step. And then there was an application that I originally wrote in Node.js, and I really wanted to migrate it from MongoDB to Postgres. So I took this as an opportunity to also rewrite it in Elixir. During that time, it really felt right for me, right? And especially when I first deployed the new version, it felt like much more comfortable. Uh, it's been running since the first deployment with no problems. And it's just, yeah, that was the point where I, where I realized that Elixir is the real deal and, and I would like to work with it more. That's pretty interesting. You, you said that at university, you were taught some courses on Elixir and Erlang. Yeah, it's not often that we hear that universities are teaching uh, Elixir, at least. Uh, Erlang, a little less surprising, but that's pretty cool. Yeah, so actually there are like um, several languages and we were to, supposed to pick two of them that we wanted to, to kind of have a look at. Erlang and Elixir was definitely one of them. Well, I'm curious, how did you come in contact with Jose and Dashput and how did that, how did that get started? It started with me submitting several pull requests to the XDoc repo. One of them was 
pretty major as it involved rewriting the whole JavaScript code base to, to remove jQuery and fix some, some things along the way. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, that's what I did. And sometime after that, Jose reached out to me and, and asked whether I'd be interested in live view and JavaScript related project. And then we talked about the, the context, right? NX that was then upcoming. I was super excited about it. <laughs> I'm really happy that you're here because while you're here, I have some questions about Livebook. Some of the things about you know how this works. I've downloaded it. I've been playing with it. And I think it's super awesome. I love that it's open source. That means a lot of us can just kind of dig in and look at this ourselves. But maybe you can kind of give us an overview about how this is put together. You know, you have uh, workbooks and sections and code or markdown and like these different things can make up these sections. Maybe just kind of give us an overview of technically how this works behind the scenes, just kind of how it all comes together. So basically, um, there are two like terms. Notebook is pretty much the content, right? It's something you can persist to a file. And session is like a live instantiation of, of this notebook where people can collaborate and basically work on that uh, live. And then within this notebook, you can, you can insert like markdown cells to, to kind of have a, a description for the code and then actual code snippets. Uh, but the important point is that whatever you do, it pretty much comes down to editing markdown in some way. Uh, so then you can persist this into so-called live markdown file. And this is a subset of markdown. So like if you put this anywhere to, to any place, it can render markdown. You will be able to preview it nicely. You can use this as an article that people can download and play around with. And you mentioned sections. So basically the, the notebook breaks down into uh, several sections, which are pretty much just a way of grouping uh, related cells. And then you can, um, yeah, edit the markdown directly and edit the code that gets evaluated live. And I saw recently there was a demo showing how it was collaborative, where, you know, you have two browser windows open. And as I'm typing in one browser window, they're both open to the same notebook. Uh, and I'm typing code into one of these little code blocks on one, it's like being updated real time on the other browser. Like, how is some of that working? For collaboration, in order to kind of understand how it works, you, we have to distinguish two separate types of operations, right? So there are synchronous operations, like inserting a cell. And synchronous means that if you press the button, you basically send a request to the server. Something happens there, Phoenix re-renders the view, and then you get back the element onto the page, right? So it's in a way synchronous. Then there are asynchronous operations like the editor, uh, so that whenever you type, the changes appear immediately in the UI before you actually send them to the server. So, so like, it's like solving two distinct problems, right? So for the synchronous operations, all we need to do is kind of make sure that everyone gets the changes in the same order. So whenever multiple users edit the same thing, the live view processes send the changes into shared central session process. And this process then broadcasts all the changes to the other users, making sure that the changes um, appear in the same order, right? And so this is pretty much using Phoenix for collaboration. But the challenge was implementing the editor. So because this is like way different, at any given point in time, people may have different state of the editor and we want to kind of converge into the same state eventually. And for that, we use a very well-known algorithm called uh, operational transformation. So it's basically that people receive each other changes and kind of transform the state 
uh, so that eventually they get into the same content, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, the front end editor that you're using, was that Quill or how, how does the front end, you know, JavaScript plug into that operational transforms? We actually use um, VS Code port that works in the web. It's called Monaco Editor. Oh, nice. Yeah, you mentioned Quill.js. Uh, we use the, the, the format and kind of the specification of the operational transformation data format uh, because it really made sense, but we don't use any of their code actually ourselves. Gotcha. So I, I didn't realize that Monaco Editor supported operational transforms like that. So that's pretty interesting. I'll have to take a look. Well, actually, it did not. We implemented it all from scratch. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but nice. it's nice because you can register handlers and kind of get the edit operations in a reasonable format. So then we have to just transform that into operations, send this to the server, and do necessary transformations on our own. So I was just looking at Monaco and the editor. Uh, it's We have a link to that in the show notes where it is on GitHub. It looks like it also supports this pop-up code completion. And I noticed that that actually also works for Elixir code. So I can open up like a little Elixir terminal and or Elixir, you know, snippet and do like IO dot and get a completion of like all the different functions that I can call. So how did you guys make it so you're pulling Elixir, you know, IntelliSense kind of data in there? Yeah, so that's interesting. I actually worked on that the, the past week. And basically what we do is we hook up into the Monaco Editor API so that whenever it requests completion, we actually send our request to the server. And the important point is that we eventually need to interact with the process responsible for evaluation because not sure if you noticed, but you can actually complete variables and see their values as, as the hint for, for the completion, right? So this is even better than like normal completion that is solely based on the editor content. Yeah, so that's what we did. It's kind of like a standardized format, and it's similar to how language servers work. But in our case, we, we uh, work on the bindings rather than just the sole code, right? Okay, that's cool. So if I understand what you're saying, you're reaching to the server to get those hints, which then gives you more information than usual or than is typical, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And we also fetch documentation for, for like packages. It's all on the server, right? So even if you install some external package, we still get the docs, the specs, and this kind of stuff. That's very cool. I know another thing that's I've heard a lot about when people talk about like, you know, executing Elixir code in a browser is the difficulty of getting back the output because you have two different kinds of output, right? Like if I do a, like a IO puts, there's what's written out to standard out, and then there's like the result of the function. And so maybe you can kind of share with us what goes into capturing that output from the different processes? So this is very interesting because it's related to how Erlang generally architects its I.O. So whenever you do stuff like I.O. puts, you are actually sending a message to I.O. device, right? Which is a process responsible for handling the I.O. And by default, the default process basically writes to the screen. But what we do is in the evaluation process that executes the code, before we execute the code, we set the process group leader. So this is the default process where we, where we send those messages. And in our case, we have our custom process that basically, instead of writing to the screen, it sends messages to the notebook process so that it can broadcast it to the live view clients. Actually, I, I wrote a notebook on this very subject. 
so if you're interested in that, feel free to check out my notebooks and GitHub repo. And there are details on that. Is there a way using Livebook that I can easily pull in a notebook from you or somewhere else? If you go to the homepage, you can click import and then paste GitHub URL to the file. And that's it. Actually, if you go to the repo I, I linked, there is a demo of that in the readme. I saw that Jose tweeted uh, the ability to get a live uh, a live book running, you know, with one line, yeah, just leveraging Docker. So it sounds like somebody's going to be or has been pushing Docker images of uh, Elixir, you know, Erlang and Livebook already loaded and got got the server starting up immediately. So that sounds like a really easy way for usually non-Elixir developers to get a Livebook up and running. So that way you can share, you know, notes and evaluations with them. That's pretty nifty. You know, the, the, it all goes into the developer experience. And it's even at this point making, you know, non-developers experience just as good as the app itself, you know, the Livebook um, app itself. It's kind of fascinating to see how how quickly everything is is moving and improving on this. Uh, so, uh, you know, kudos to you for that. That's that's a that's an amazing job. Great job with this. Thank you. Yeah, along those lines, I can kind of foresee a future where you started a new company and there's all these notebooks, not just Markdown files, but there's like live Markdown files, and there's all this stuff. All of these pages, like with documentation on how the app works with like live runnable code. It's like, here's how our account system works. Here's some code on how you would authenticate. Click here to authenticate this, to create a new fake user and authenticate. Like, oh, okay, that's how that works. And there's like all these live notebooks, right? Where you can just click through and like play with local development. And I can also foresee like, and I know this is not going along with like machine learning and maybe perhaps how you guys <laughs> intended this live book to be used, but how awesome would that be to like have all your documentation and the fact that you can just import anything from anywhere and like get some notes that somebody else took. Like, it's so cool. I could foresee like people getting into maybe getting into data science and like not really like, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just investigating. Like I can just connect to a remote node, right? and play around with some data and we can take notes and collaborate before we like start writing real code and you can save it somewhere and it's so easy to use so this is really exciting yeah so as we are in the documentation space so you can actually run a live book inside a, in the context of a mixed project so this is uh, great because you can uh, save the notebooks as part of the project and then let the developers open the notebook and connect to the mixed project itself Right. So, so we get access to all the dependencies, all the modules, this kind of stuff. And another thing we are kind of considering is, is kind of integrating live notebooks with, uh, with XDoc so that we will be able to save the notebooks with output so that you can easily upload this to, to XDoc and then probably like have a link to import from XDoc into your local notebook. You didn't say this, but like hex. You know, the, the, what what running instance of Elixir is are these going to you know uh, connect to <laughs> for them to be live with with an instance like Hex isn't going to do that, right? So it's the option to to connect to your own node from Xdocs, you know, documentation. Like if I'm looking at XAWS for example, and I wanted to play with the dependency before I pull it into a project, would I have Livebook you know connect to my my node from Xdoc? What I could see, and, and please, Jonathan, like expound on this, but like what I could see happening is 
that I could have a local version of a local running instance of Livebook and I can link to maybe a hex docs notebook that says, here's how you can play with and see this project in action. So then it just runs on my local thing. Because one of the things we mm-hmm. have to talk about at this point is security. Yeah. And some of the security <laughs> choices that were, just, that were already made and decided on. So maybe this is a good time to kind of jump into that. So what is the security model? What are the risks for like how we could use this and what is not a good idea? Yeah, so generally the, the idea behind notebooks is to allow for arbitrary code execution. So any kind of limitation in these terms really limits the ability of, of like experimenting freely. So it's never a good idea to have a publicly running live book um, that has access to any kind of sensitive uh, files, right? So we, we basically provide password authentication if you want to run live book in the cloud. And when running locally, by default, there is uh, an authentication token. So if you run, run Livebook, in the terminal, there is uh, a URL together with the token, right? So this makes sure that nobody can like just access the, the Livebook itself, uh, without your permission to that. Right. Yeah. Because it, it is the whole aspect of arbitrary code execution. And, you know, you have all these things built into the beam where I can just, you know, start exploring the file system of the computer that it's running on. You can literally type ls and cd. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. So that is part of the whole idea is that it, it's only intended to be run locally. And I love the idea of this token thing, which you can just click in the console, like when you start it up, starts up with a token as part of the URL, which logs you into a local instance. Yeah. So like going back to that doc example, like there wouldn't be a live book running up on hex servers, but instead there would be like a link that you could like import the doc straight into your local running version. And then thanks to the work of contributors, we have mix.install, right? You could have the dependency of AWS running in your notebook now, right? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the idea. Yeah. Also, you mentioned mix install. So this is uh, another important important point for Livebook because we really focus on reproducibility, both in terms of evaluation and and in the in terms of dependencies. Because in other solution, people always kind of depend on global packages. This is especially prominent in the Jupyter ecosystem. So like. We assume you have NumPy, this version, something else, this version. And if you save the notebook and send to somebody else, it's hard to reproduce the, the results, especially if the notebook is old. Mixing some naturally solves this for Livebook and for Elixir scripts in general. Yeah, so this was a great addition in this regard. So I know Mix install was kind of headed up by Wojtek Mach, who also works at Dashbit. So was there some like behind the scenes like, hey, you know, this would really be helpful to have this? Was that kind of part of what brought these both at the same time? As for mix install, we talked previously about how we would handle dependencies, but we kind of weren't sure. And at some point I had um, a talk with, with José and he said, well, so this is fixed now and let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Following on from what Cade had said, another idea I had for how this could be used is like Live Dashboard has a plug that you can just stick into your Phoenix router and it kind of sets up a a Live Dashboard instance all configured for you. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could do something similar with Livebook where I can have like a plug and I put it behind like an admin pipeline. So you can only get to it if like you're super admin on the server. I can imagine those markdown files like Cade was kind of alluding to where you say, you know, if you have this kind of problem in production, 
here's the script to run to fix it. If you have this kind of a problem, here's the thing to do to fix it. Where you could just actually see and execute the code and have it fix the stuff and see the output right there with your markdown instructions all there. I think that's that'd be super fun. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Is that like a terrible idea? <laughs> I can imagine that although we've, we mostly connect to like other nodes, right? So if you, if you think about the current runtimes we have, you either spawn a new Elixir runtime or a mix runtime, um, or you connect to an attached node, right? You, you don't evaluate the code in the same node that the livebook application is running, right? So uh, that's to provide some kind of isolation. Because if you define a module, you basically define the module in the whole runtime, right? So if it was like, as you said, as part of the router, then whatever module you would define in the live book, it would actually be defined in the production environment also. So that's not necessarily the, the best idea. Sorry, Mark. But I can definitely imagine like having the production node being distribution enabled, and then you just run live book and connect to, to this very node. Ah, yeah, that's probably a safer way to do that. Yeah, I, though, though if, if, if you're already consoling into your running nodes and doing a, you know, a remote console, and pasting in code, you know, into your, like, it's effectively the same thing. You just yep. have a less, you know, a lesser UI. So if you're already doing that, like, <laughs> sure, why not use Livebook? But bad idea <laughs> to do that kind of stuff anyway. You don't want to, you don't want to make the, the, that bad thing easier to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, having worked in environments where there's compliance, right? In multiple places where compliance is a concern, I understand like some places just say, no, that's not acceptable in a production in environment. But I know like for the personal project, heck yeah, I want to do that. You know, because <laughs> it's just me. It's like, I just want to run that. Yeah. Anyway, that's fun. I've worked at enough places where, you know, we have scripts in source control that like reach up to production and like create a new tenant or do something like that. And it's like, you know, if you're already doing something crazy, you know, this isn't the perfect environment. We know that we shouldn't be doing this, but like, how much nicer <laughs> would it be to have like documentation and images and markdown and then click to execute, you know, might as well, might as well make what you're doing that's not perfect, like a little bit better, right? And then later when you, when you patch up all of these security holes, you know, you, you won't be able to do it anymore. Now, I, I recognize and acknowledge that this is all an abuse from what Livebook was intended for, right? Yeah. That, it was all about NX and machine learning, which I think is awesome. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not actually in that space. I don't have any experience with machine learning. So that's something that yet I have to dig into and get more experience with. But anyway, I don't know. So what are some of the fun things that you think people can do with Livebook? One thing I, I knew people are already doing is running it on nerves. So, so you can play around with the embedded device using Livebook. This one actually surprised me, although given how everything kind of coexists in, in the Elixir ecosystem, this is not really that surprising, uh, but it's pretty cool. That makes sense. Cause yeah, when you're wanting to like have very fast feedback for like messing with servos and switches on a nerves device, that would be really handy. I can see that. I love how this is like, in the Elixir NX domain, and then we come talk about it, and all we can talk about are ways how to not use it doing <laughs> machine learning. <laughs> Just to get it back to machine learning a little bit, so it's we, we talked about live uh, live book live markdown. We talked about the operational transforms, which allows that collaboration, which is, which is really nifty. 
but there's there's other parts uh, and we talked about how it connects uh, to nodes in the environment that it's running in so that's that's really really cool um, but there's there's uh, there's a couple of other things that livebook does as well that that is more about the the data science to it one of those is parsing uh, another syntax for mathematical equations can you can you talk about that some of those features basically uh, we noticed that for scientific and numerical stuff people are likely to use um, some LaTeX like equations. So, so we added, so, so we extended the rendering of Markdown to handle these equations. That's pretty, um, small feature, but it should make people's life easier. Right. And I can't remember. Um, I know that usually when it comes to Elixir and Markdown, the parser that we tend to use is Earmark. How is that integration to get? Did you say, uh, LaTeX? Am I saying that right? L-A-T-E-X? Is that, is that the syntax you're using for math? Yeah, that's, that's, that's generally what people use. Uh, and yeah, it's often used with Markdown, but you just kind of use equations in this style. And so does, did Earmark support that out of the box or did you guys have to build something around that? Well, actually not because, uh, on the client, we use a separate package, uh, so that it's, the Markdown is rendered with JavaScript. And the primary reason for that is, uh, if someone types in live, we don't want to get back to the server on every, like, keystroke to render the content immediately. Mm-hmm. And especially with the col- collaborative environment, what you have locally may not necessarily re- reflect what others have. So this is another reason for rendering the markdown on the client side with whatever content you actually have at this moment. Yeah, we actually use um, Airmark parser for like parsing the live markdown, uh, kind of processing that and then and then transforming this back to markdown. Livebook is a live view app. Because I've gotten the sense that, you know, given all this complexity you're talking about, yeah, we, we wanted some of these things to not be full round trips. We want some of it to happen on the client. That you do have a fair bit of JavaScript on the client, but I got some sense that there's really still not that much JavaScript. I just wonder if you could kind of speak to that. As for the JavaScript, it's actually mostly related to the editor because uh, it's naturally handled client side. So all the operational transformation, on all the kind of collaboration stuff. And also I, I written a tokenizer for Elixir. So this is another huge chunk of code on the JavaScript side. But other than that, it's mostly like handy key bindings, basic events, nothing fancy. So Phoenix uh, LiveView does most of the handling and it's, and it's pretty simple given the, the use case we have. Like Phoenix really makes such a complex use case kind of simple. So I would like to hear just kind of your perspective on writing a live view project like this, because, you know, as far as live view projects go, this is a more complex one, right? This has a lot more going on than a typical CRUD style, give better feedback very quickly. So what was that like? And, you know, this is probably, was this your first major live view project or what was that like? That was my first live view project ever, actually. (laughs) I did some, actually I did a lot of React before. So to some extent, some concepts were familiar. But as you said, it's, it's very complex live view example because we have just two live views. There is a huge rendering going on. Yeah, but it's been fun. Although there were some, there were some specific issues we had to address. So one of them was rendering stuff, like rendering the output. Some code may produce a bunch of output lines, right? And the problem is that if there is such a huge amount of output, the browser spends a lot of time computing the layout. 
And the problem is not with the elements being in the document, but rather with the fact that the elements are visible. And a common solution to this problem is to use virtualization. So we have like a scrollable container and you actually render only whatever is in the viewport. So how we addressed that with LiveView was we, we created a hidden container with all the rendered content and that was handled entirely by, by Phoenix. And then we had a small piece of JavaScript that basically handled virtualization and used this hidden container as the source of content to render. Yeah, so this is, this is one of the things. I'm not, not sure if you ever encountered something similar and had to address that. I haven't had to. From previous conversations we've had where you like infinite scroll and things like that, where the number of DOM elements does present a problem just for browsers as you get to huge things. So I can, I can totally see that because you know, if I'm just experimenting with some Elixir code and I do some operation that just creates massive amounts of output unintentionally, I'm just not even thinking about how much data it's going to generate, that would be a problem. So that's really interesting that you had to solve that. I like that solution. Another, another Live-specific point was that for the notebook view, we have a data structure that is behind the whole like rendered page, right? And then some events would update the data structure, but those changes would be irrelevant to the like rendered template. And so Phoenix would have to re-render the template, even though it was like pointless in some cases. So what we did was create uh, another data structure that was tailored for the template, right? So whenever this data structure changed, we, we are sure that the template would render differently. Uh, so then whenever the original data structure gets updated, we compute this live view specific data structure. And that's what, what we use for the rendering. And then Phoenix can easily skip unnecessary renderings. And what I love is with Livebook being open source, it's, we can just dig in and look at how that works. Exactly. As I'm playing with a Livebook, I can write in this Elixir code and I can hit control enter. It works as a shortcut, which I think is awesome that shortcuts are supported. But you know, there's also an evaluate button. You mentioned this idea how variables from one code cell and then I declare a variable there and then in a lower one, I can reference that variable. So I am kind of curious about how these are being evaluated because it's clearly not just this snippet in isolation, right? How is that working all together? First of all, if you compare this with um, similar tooling, What's usually happening is that similar tools usually have a global state. So if you define a variable anywhere, it makes into the memory and then you can access it anywhere in the notebook. Even if you remove the code that defines the variable, it's still in the memory, which causes a lot of problems because the notebooks become hard to reproduce. So that's one of the major like design problems that we intended to solve well for Livebook. So what we did is that whenever there is like a code snippet, code cell, it only sees the variables, the environment that goes, that goes above, right? And how it's like is implemented in practice is that, um, if you think about evaluation state is basically what variables we have and what aliases, imports and other kinds of environment we have, right? So this is evaluation state. And then every code cell takes such an evaluation state and transforms it into another evaluation state, right? by defining new variables, imports, and stuff. And if you think about the notebook as a whole, we basically start with an empty evaluation state and pipe it through all the, all the code snippets that kind of alter the, the state and produce a new state. But due to the immutability, we can actually keep track of all the intermediate states. 
So then if you import, if you insert a new cell in the middle of the notebook, we can actually take the most appropriate state, state that was result uh, of the previous cell, right? And use this as the kind of starting point for the new cell. And there is also a visual indication of like which cells are stale, which cells are evaluated and up to date. So it's pretty clear. So like the state of the evaluation is in general pretty clear to the user and the reproducibility is much better. That's really cool. I didn't think about the challenges that you would encounter as you continually built it up. And I could add things prior to this code cell and after it and, and execute them in different orders. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of complexity there. I think you guys solved it really well. That reminds me of Docker layers for some reason. It has to know <laughs> when it's tainted and then re-evaluate re, re you know, from that line down. You had mentioned that these, that these notebooks are stored as files, right? It's not like written to a Postgres database or anything. And, but you're also talking about like these states that are kind of shared or, or stored. Are the, like, what is that file structure like? Now, how, did, how is that used? So the file format we use is pretty much Markdown. So all the code cells are Markdown snippets. And there are just a few kind of assumptions we make about the, the format. So for example, every heading to starts a new section and the primary heading makes up for the notebook title. Um, but other than that, it's just a regular markdown. And this has a, a lot of advantages because you can, you know, put this in a GitHub repo and it's readable. People can submit pull requests and you can like comment on the diff, right? And, and it's kind of in, in opposition to having a huge JSON that contains all this information that it's not readable at all. Uh, so, so this is pretty cool. But currently there is no output in the format, right? Uh, but we plan on kind of supporting the output as an option for, for exporting the live markdown together with the output, which is pretty useful for documentation purposes. That's a good point. I hadn't considered that. So that would be really interesting. You could go through and execute everything and then export it with output so you can see it all together, not being inside of live book. Is it all completely stateless? Like if you add a new block at the bottom and then evaluate it, does it go through and evaluate all the previous blocks every time? Or since they've already been evaluated and haven't changed, you know that you don't need to evaluate them? If you add a new cell, we basically look for the first up-to-date cell that is above, right? And then if there's anything stale be below the cell, we kind of evaluate that to the point where we get the, the environment that we need. Right. So if everything is evaluated and you just insert something, then there is no other evaluation that we need to, we need to perform. Right. So it is very similar to what David is saying. Like you could have a really complicated equation up top that maybe takes longer than usual. And as long as you don't change the layers above it, it may not have to be mm -hmm. reevaluated every time in order to get a valid state for the blocks below. Yeah. Having not looked at the source code, I, I'm, I imagine that you have. Yeah, these cells could have in memory what the results are, and you just pull those results, assign it to a variable, put it into the next cell, you know, for evaluation. That's what my head says to do, but I don't know how you guys did it. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically, whenever you evaluate a cell, we register its, its result, all the bindings, all the environment, and keep track of that. So whenever then we need this again, we can just pull this off and use that. Is it stored in a struct? Or in ATS, how, how do you store that? I'm just curious. There is um, usually like one process responsible for the evaluation. And it has a map with all those bindings for, for specific cells, right? Gotcha. Yeah, so then we can evaluate code and, sell and tell, well, let's use results from this very specific cell, right? 
and it can just use these bindings environment as the uh, for the evaluation. I see. Gotcha. So yeah, it's just sitting in a gen server then. Well, Jonathan, we're coming up to our time. But before we let you go, I wanted to kind of find out where are you going next with things? What What's getting you excited and where are you heading next? Right. So uh, for the upcoming feature, I definitely plan to keep working on Livebook. And there are several features that we already have in mind. So first of all, we want to improve the collaborative nature, right? Because currently everything is collaborative, but there is no like visual indication how many people work, where they work and stuff. So we want to add these like standard cursor so that you can see where everybody is uh, and this kind of features. And then we will explore like introducing specific components to to the output in, in a way. So for example, you will, you will be able to render an ETS table, right? So you can interact with that. that. That's like our primary idea. And in terms of like those components, there is much, much to explore, especially for the machine learning front. So like graphs, charts and this kind of uh, numerical stuff. So we'll see. Very cool. I'm excited to see what you guys come up with. I'm excited just because while I don't personally work in the machine learning space, I am super excited about this because I see how this has potentials just to help people coming into Elixir, right? Like coming from, you know, if they are in the machine learning space, I've been seeing a lot of people having great performance and uh, experiences like compared to Jupyter Notebooks or other types of notebook-like systems. And they're saying, wow, the Elixir ones really works really well. So I'm glad to see that. But I'm also just excited because people can use it as maybe another avenue for education and introducing people to Elixir, making lowering the bar of like recently, Jose tweeted how you can run Livebook in a Docker container. So you don't even have to have Elixir installed, lowering the bar, making it easier for people to access it. And that gives them access to Elixir. And so then you can have more education or like, hey, here's a markdown file that introduces you to some stuff. And here's you can play with it right there. I think that's really exciting. Yeah, exactly. So originally, like the primary incentive for Livebook was NX and the, the ecosystem that's, that's emerging. But from the very start, I see like so much potential, especially for, for educational purposes and also for like prototyping. So for me personally, it's, it's a more, more pleasant to work with version of IX because you have editors so we can easily edit all the code on the fly and then continuously keep evaluating that. So for our like regular development experience, I, I think this is, again, pretty useful. I feel that for sure. No more spamming the up button. <laughs> well, if people want to follow more developments of what's happening with Livebook or get in touch with you or follow you online or anything like that, where should they go to do that? Yeah, so I, I don't really do social media. So to follow me, the best place is GitHub probably. Um, but if you want to reach out to me, feel free to email me directly. And as for the updates, Jose posts some tweets um, from time to time on that. And you can check out the Livebook repo directly. Um, there are ongoing like pull request issues. So feel free to have a look at that, play around and give us feedback. If you, dear listener, haven't had a chance to play with Livebook yet, take some time, grab it. It's easy to install and get set up with and just start playing with it. And if you're like me and Cade then you, and David, then you just kind of get giddy with it. And you're just like, oh, this is so fun. This is so cool. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. So Jonathan, what is speed cubing? Well, so speed cubing is a kind of sport for related to solving Rubik's Cube and similar puzzles as fast as possible. 
And this is an extremely exciting kind of activity. So if you, if you've never heard of that, feel free to uh, look it up in YouTube, see some videos because this, this is great. And as for myself, I've been involved in the speedcubing community for like several years. And most of the projects that I worked on were actually open source projects related to, to the speedcubing. So it's been kind of great way of combining my speedcubing and programming passions uh, altogether. 